Good morning. Welcome back to day two. I trust that there will be many more that continue to file in while Mike is speaking. Um, Last night I was still kind of in the post-message fog when I was trying to introduce Mike. Uh, when you when you speak, when you give a message, uh, as soon as you finish, you're just like, what planet am I on? And so then like trying to regroup and think about things you wanted to say. Um, one of the reasons why Michael found is at the top of the list of people that I wanted to have here and to speak is... Um, He's, he's been accurately described as source Q for the anti-woke resistance movement. So if you know about New Testament studies, you know that uh, there's this idea out there that Matthew didn't write Matthew, Mark didn't write Mark, et cetera, et cetera. But these, these books came from other sources, and that those other sources are called source Q, which is this mysterious document that um, nobody really knows. So in that sense, it, it, it sounds a little dark, but Mike is, is that original source that all the others draw from. Um, but unlike the manuscript stuff, Mike is real. So, um, <laughs> so um, yeah, so if you follow um, popular bloggers or uh, YouTube accounts, or if you're buying um, any of these books that are being written these days against social justice, um, many, if not all of them, are leaning heavily on and drawing heavily from the work that Michael Fallon has done or started, um, or the work that James Lindsay has done, which Mike is the guy behind that, too. So um, if you want to, to go to the source, you go to Michael Fallon. So that's the main reason why I wanted him here as, as the guy to, to diagnose the situation and tell us um, what's going on. Why are things the way they are? Why, why is my church woke? Why are people rioting in the streets and the cops are told not to do anything, but uh, little old ladies are being stopped for not wearing a mask or not having a vax card? So those types of things, um, it's all connected. It's all part of the same agenda, and there's nobody better to unpack it and explain it than Mike O'Fallon. So Mike, come on up. and uh... Thanks, Yeah, appreciate it. Okay, well, it's good to be with you again. And again, the mic is placed here properly to oppress me. So we need to point it down a little bit this way. I was going to try to do something this morning. Uh, first of all, how many of you were, were here last night? Okay, well, the three Jewish guys made it through the fire. They're okay. And Nebuchadnezzar. Okay, so we're going to move on from that. And I decided to do something a little bit different. And what I really wanted to do this morning was get into really the root of things. Uh, because nothing like this has really ever been done publicly before. Um, Andy is correct that... Much of the things that you've seen maybe over the past four years that have kind of floated out there about where is all this coming from and so forth. And you've seen a film made recently that talks about a lot of things. Well, that is a lot of information that I gave. There were some NDAs and some other things that were prohibiting me from speaking about a lot of things um, vocally. Uh, And as well, I didn't really want to start what is known as sovereign nations. That was never my intent. I didn't want to do that. But it was clear to me after several years of running to men and saying, this is what's happening and here's what's going on and this is why we have to stop it and here's the root of it and all sorts of folks finding little pieces of the jigsaw puzzle but not quite putting it all together so we weren't able to really take it on properly. I think a lot of people just want to say, well, these things have kind of come into the church because we're concerned about evangelism. We're trying to find different ways of reaching people. Or maybe it's coming in because guys are just trying to be liked by the world. And all those things, yeah, are true, but it's not really the reason why it's happening. It has nothing to do with spiritual men wanting to do spiritual things and are just trying to find more spiritual ways of doing those. And really when you see what this is all about, it's really a degradation of truth. So I think all of us right now, we, we can say that we are affected by the issues of people not really being able to say what is true and what is not true. Now, we're just not talking about Scripture now or about the Christian faith. We're talking about everything. So how do you know that something is objectively true? 
And if we take a look at what objective truth means, something that is provable, but also in terms of falsification, how you can falsify or not whether something is true or not true, that it stands the test of falsification, right? We know that it's objectively true. On the other hand, you have subjective, and they call it truth, but it's alchemy. And what is really alchemy? And the, the term really has its, its origin in hermeticism. Hermeticism and Gnosticism, and basically a blend of those things uh, through the centuries, where the idea really comes from, if you, ref- if you remember a lot of your mythology from, from the ancients, would be through Pygmalionism, that something that you wish to be in your mind can become something in your mind. And of course, the legend is, the myth is, that a man had a large marble or stone statue, or first it was just a block, and he thought about what he wanted it to be, and he wasn't married, so he carved the image into the vision of the woman that he wanted to love. And eventually, that woman that he wanted to love became true and livable. And then that was the story of Pygmalion, that he made something out of stone, something that was not alive, alive. So that same kind of concept is carried through the years. A lot of what you're, uh, as we talked about last night, has a lot to do with Baptists as far as the wider things, but you can really blame it on a lot of other things that uh, happen to do with creating these ideas of Hegelianism and, and a lot of the different concepts that come along that start to shape our ideologies. And really, where you start to see some blending in of Hermeticism and Gnosticism coming back into the Protestant side of the Christian faith, and this is post-Reformation, what was the Latin term that was very popularized, especially in the time of Calvin, that everybody used to describe what the Reformation was? It was what? Post-Tenebras Lux, after darkness, after centuries of not knowing what the truth was, because there was no way to actually to compare it to what the standard of objective truth was, right? The word of God. So what you had is you had to believe what the priest, or the technocrat, you had to believe what the priest told you was true. And when the priest told you, well, you got a problem with your eye, well, go and pray to St. Blaise. And through that intercessory prayer, prayer, he's the guy you go to for all the things with your eyes, and he's going to make sure that that message, of course, gets to God or gets through to Mary, and so forth, and on our way up the chain of prayer. And also, there can be things that are taken from the, the basically the treasury of merit, which is all the merit that is all these other concepts that have nothing to do with biblical truth, are created in a system that are delivered by a priest class. Well, you had this guy named Martin Luther. And Luther was the priest of priests this Augustinian priest, this priest, you know, from Eisenach, then through to Erfurt, where he did his training, and where he would flagellate himself to rid himself of the sin that he had brought into his life, because that's what he was told that you needed to do. So he wanted to do whatever was necessary to rid himself of that sin and be right before God. But the word of God had a way of coming through. And this is a man, obviously, we, we look back on who Luther was. It's a man that mastered the languages. And of course, after he mastered the languages, he wanted to make sure that everybody else had access to that language as well. They had access to the word of God. But when he saw that there's a real conflict here, he thought he should start to tell everybody about it. So he was the wild boar in the vineyard. He was a man that... Really, look, you, don't, you think that Luther just came out and said, I'm going to do this, and I'm not going to consider the consequences of what I have to do. No, we all do. You think about what he went through during the Edict of Worms. At Worms, he was tortured with what he should, how he should respond to this, because he knew it was basically placing a, a death sentence on his head. He's thinking through, well, if it dies with me, does the truth die with me because I'm the only one that's doing it? Well, he finally came in front of those that were there to condemn him. And he said, here I stand, I can do no other. So here's a guy that's running a travel tour uh, and as well consultancy business. 
I do events and so forth for all these major ministries. I'm leading all these folks through the land of the Reformation for years and years and years, and I'm the guy that tells the stories, and I'm the guy that sets these things up. And Don't you think it's going to have an impact on me after a while? I mean, here I'm standing in the places that these guys stood. And I'm standing here with other men and other ministries. They don't mean a word of it. And they know that I know that they don't mean a word of it. And even though they know that I know that they don't mean a word of it, they're going to still say it anyway. And when they get back to wherever they are, they're going to think about how they can start to evolve and change things, to change the truth. But we don't need to change the truth. And let me start going. Let's turn, please, to John chapter 1, starting at verse 1. Let's look at the source of truth. John chapter 1, verse 1, and you'll be able to catch up with me, so I'm just going to go ahead and start. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Let's pause there for a second. What we're trying to do, and if you take a look at New Discourses, this is why the motto are saying is this, we're trying to shine an objective light in the subjective darkness. And that's your job too. And that's your job to explain to your pastor that that's his job as well. So the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Stop for a second. That's our job. That's my job. And for a long time, I think I thought that my job was to make sure that the system of the evangelical church, of everything that we do, of the seminary structures, of everything else, needs to continue, and I'm the person that helps to make sure that that continues. We go back to the text. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. So here in the first chapter of the Gospel of John, it's clearly revealed that, number one, Jesus is the word, the logos. Number two, Jesus, the logos, is the true light from which truth flows. And this light, the light of truth, the light of hope, the light that would dispel the darkness had come into the world. The light of Christ illuminates our path, bringing visibility to our journey. And the Lord continues this theme again in John chapter 11, verses 9 and 10. Let's go there. Chapter 11, verses 9 and 10. Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, but he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is the light, and he is the truth. He is the true light. By not walking in and through him, and through him also through his word, We are bound to stumble. And what you've seen really over the past two years now that people and church, let's have this discussion again real quick. There wouldn't be such an emphasis on CRT and the issues around radical subjectivity if it wasn't for the fact that a bunch of angry moms and dads started figuring out what they were pushing into their kids in the public school system. See, because what we did is we said, okay, well, look, we have some men here that are icons and we we can't upset that. Look, we have institutions here and we need to protect those institutions. And look, we don't want to rock the boat. Maybe we need to have some private conversations with these men. But we, we, we don't want to shake everything up, okay? Let's keep this quiet. Let's have private meetings. And I and several others that are in the room right now have been in several private meetings with some of those icons where they lied plainly face-to-face to us. Where they knew again that I knew what they were doing. And yet they lied. 
So sometimes you have to wonder if it wasn't for what those folks were doing in the world. What have we become in the church? And are we going down some sort of, some sort of pathway where we've become basically a club that you need to belong to? where we, we basically have secret rituals and things, and we can't upset what happens, and we need to go through all these different pathways. We talk about Matthew 18, but we never follow it. And we actually never take it seriously, because that all happens in the back room. And we don't talk about what really happened. You see where this comes? And so when you start to talk about, well, you know, this is what so-and-so said, well, then you're lambasted as someone who's, who's really trying to destroy the church. No, we're trying to save it. So, the light is going to help you see things clearly, right? Okay, so you're much more easily able to see where you were coming to church this morning than where you were last night or trying to get home. You know, when the first person who was driving myself and some of the other brothers home last night, and the traffic was awful. So, he's pulling up and you're seeing these long streets, these long alleyways, going, it's, well, your hotel's down there a block or so, but it's dark. You know, you're like, well, maybe I'll stay in the car just a bit longer. I have another 20 minutes to spare. You know, we'll get there eventually. Because he didn't want to walk through the darkness. You see, things hide in the dark. You can't see where you can walk clearly. Well, the darkness would be like the absence of truth, and it will obscure your ability to see, to move about with surety. So with an understanding of the meaning and source of truth in the Christian life defined, let's tackle and define some of the most important issues of what is what we are attempting to discuss at this very important conference being held in New York City. You see, because New York City has basically become the place where subjectivity rules. You know, we drove past a glorious temple to subjectivity last night by St. Patrick's. And I know that there are all sorts of other temples to subjectivity all around that have the name Reformed and Evangelical or Christian in front of them. Matter of fact, one of the, the masters of subjectivity, and I don't mind naming a couple names, Ed Stetzer, is now reigning here as well. So critical race theory. Let me just give you a brief introduction. And I want to keep this simple for you. Okay, because I want to make sure that as we begin to use these terms and so forth, that we don't blow past this. But I want to give you a way that you can start to think about this. So if you want to take notes, even Andy, is it okay that they even record this portion a little bit on their phones? Is that all right? Okay, just for a few minutes. <coughs> if you record, make sure to slip uh, Andy at 20 on your way out. Okay. So first of all, just a brief definition of critical race theory. Okay, this isn't going into the historicism or anything else. It's the belief that the fundamental organizing principle of society is racism. It's the belief that the fundamental organizing principle of society that we have right now is racism. Of course, we're talking about the United States and Western civilization. You can't import that thought over to China, right? Which is a radical hegemony. Now, I'm married into a Chinese family, by the way. I was known as the white devil for the first two years. And if you've ever been to China, you understand how radically racist they are. Many of them are. This racism was created by white people, specifically to oppress people of other races. So this racism was created by white people in systems specifically to oppress other peoples, to benefit those that are apparently white. Even though I'm half Cuban, and my abuela and abuelo fled Cuba to come here for opportunity. Okay? So when they say systemic oppression or systemic racism, what are they referring to? Capitalism. Whites, particularly white males, maintain this racism to maintain their own advantages in society. Okay, so in other words, we want to try to make sure, this is, this is a conspiracy theory, folks. We maintain this racism that we've created all around us. Look at New York. It's a temple to white supremacy. 
all of this profit, all of these things that you can buy in a store. You can walk into a store and you can buy any one of 40 different kinds of toothpaste. You have all these different choices of places you can get pizza and burgers and caviar and foie gras. And see, because Daryl Bernard Harrison likes those things too, that means that he's an ally to white supremacy. And he doesn't speak with an authentic black voice. You see, he's actually a white supremacist. Now you know where they get that. It's the truth. Okay, so let's, that's our fundamental base of where we're going to go, okay? So here's the primary concepts behind CRT. First, critical race theory is centrally concerned with power, which holds its higher regard, in really higher regard, truth than truth, okay? Power is more important to them than truth. So it holds the postmodern position that claims to truth are assertions of power by specific means. So while we can say that many of these concepts are derived through Michel Foucault, which he's usually the guy that we blame everything on, right? It would be wrong just to pin it all on the power relationship references to him, and I'm going to get into that in a second. Second, critical race theory distinguishes itself from traditional civil rights and instead favors radical identity politics. Third, it is not interested in progress or civil rights. It's interested in revolution. So if you're saying that everything is systemically oppressive all around you in New York City, if you're saying that this is a giant white system to keep everyone else down and just support the white males that are in the city that have created these systems, what's the thing that you have to do? Burn, loot, steal, destroy, disrupt, dismantle. That's what you have to do. Fourth, it calls into questions the very foundations of the liberal order, including equality theory. So when people say it's very liberal, no, it's not. Oh, it's very conservative. You see, the new cult is a very conservative cult. And boy, do they believe in their morals. The scientific method and neutral principles of constitutional law. Those positions... They basically, all those ways of looking at constitutional law position critical race theory as explicitly anti-Western. Now, critical race theory favors equity over equality. And so where equity specifically refers to a particular understanding of social equity theory and not a more generalist notion of fairness. So we came over here for equality. That, hey, look, if you're willing to work hard, do your best, get trained, Get up early, stay late, make the thing happen. You should be able to succeed in life. Well, that's not fair. And look, people look at me that, well, he's a perfect example of somebody who's had privilege his whole life. Um, Things didn't go so well for me on the professional tennis tour. Now, I know it's hard to believe that that happened with me. So I ended up cleaning a lot of toilets, sweeping courts, lining courts at 4.30, 5 o'clock in the morning, did it again in the afternoon, stayed and worked and taught until 9 o'clock at night. I did a lot of hard work with my hands. I did whatever was necessary, suffered sunburn after sunburn after sunburn to try to make it. So, but here's what I did, especially after I received Christ. When I was sweeping all these clay courts, we had 16 of them and then lining them all, which would take about three hours, and then watering them and so forth, and cleaning the toilets of the, of the club. I would listen to R.C. Sproul on my Walkman, defending your faith series, the consequences of ideas, chosen by God. And I would learn and learn and learn and learn. You see, that was my education. So... Most of the concepts behind CRT were heavily influenced by ideas and concepts first preached by Jean-Jacques Rousseau. That's where a lot of this starts. Now, understand that Jean-Jacques Rousseau, as well as Kant, and as well as Hegel, were heavily influenced by another weird name. It's called Swedenborgism, which is a crypto-Lutheran view of things, which began to blend in concepts of hermeticism and Gnosticism and alchemy into the process of understanding faith. 
Then through the years of being codified through Hegel, uh, whom we spoke about last night quite a bit, right? We're talking about biblical interpretation. Well, then Marx. And Marx argued that for revolutionary social transformation to be successful, the worldviews of the predominant groups must first be unmasked as instruments of domination. So in classical Marxism, this crucial task of demystifying and delegitimizing the ideological hegemony of the dominant groups is performed by intellectuals. So in essence, the function of delegitimizing is done by technocrats. So if we're going to talk about technocrats through history, we need to talk about the Fabians again, because it was through the British Fabians, they were the ultimate technocrats, that they saw that, again, as we said last night, they didn't want to do a violent, bloody revolution, because a man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still, right? And instead, they followed a path that was very similar to someone else named Antonio Gramsci. And Gramsci expanded Marx's ranks of the oppressed into categories that still endure today and are used quite often in the theories that have been developed. He wrote in his famous prison notebooks this, and by the way, during his last few years, without a doubt, he was visited by some of the gentlemen that were part of the Frankfurt School, the critical theorists, because they understood that there was great value in what Gramsci was saying. He was a brilliant man, no doubt. And this is what he said, quote, the marginalized groups of, groups of history include not only the economically oppressed, which is where Marx went with things, but also women, women, racial minorities, and many criminals. What Marx and his orthodox followers described as the people, Gramsci describes as an ensemble of subordinate groups and classes in every society that has ever existed until now. Kind of an intersectional, well, anyway. This collection of oppressed and marginalized groups, the people, he would call them, lack unity and often even consciousness of their own oppression. To reverse the correlation of power from the privileged to the marginalized, then, was Gramsci's declared goal. Power, in Gramsci's observation, is exercised by privileged groups or classes in two ways. Through domination, now think forward to Foucault, force or, or coercion, and through something called hegemony which means the ideological supremacy of a system and values that supports the class or group interests of the predominant classes or groups. Subordinate groups, he argued, are influenced to internalize the value systems and worldviews of the privileged groups and thus to consent to their own marginalization. So those of you that are not Anglo, that did not come through those systems, which is quite a few of us in this room, we are marginalized. We are being oppressed. You need liberation. And liberation comes through Marxism. Understand what CRT is for, okay? Now, Gramsci believed that it was necessary first to delegitimize the dominant belief systems of the predominant groups and to create a counter-hegemony. I want you to think back to what's happening in the church. Let me read that again. Gramsci believed that it was necessary first to delegitimize the dominant belief systems of the predominant groups. In other words, the way that faith was 30, 40, 50 years ago. When you think about R.C. Sproul and his commitment to reform theology and to the truth. When you think about some of the old lions and why some of the old lions were the only ones that dared to roar. So you had to delegitimize these voices. And you had to create a counter-hegemony. You had to have a coalition to be able to come up against them. So counter-hegemony, a system of values for the subordinate groups, must be created before the marginalized could be empowered. Moreover, because hegemonic values permeate all spheres of civil society, it's in everything. It's molecularly here, they would say, that it's in our schools, our churches, it's in the media, it's in our arts and entertainment, it's in voluntary associations, it's in civil society itself, he argued. Well, that is the great battleground in the struggle for hegemony. It is the war of position, positionality. Thus, your private life, your workplace, 
This is why, if you're in a workplace, why you're going through microaggressions and microassaults and all the other nonsense and having to change your language and so forth that you use, why the Me Too movement is there. They want to make sure that men are not talking to women and women aren't talking to men, that nothing happens where you get married, maybe you have kids and so forth, and you create a sovereign family where you make the decisions, not the government, where you are telling your children the way that they should go. You want to eliminate all that. So these are all contested battlegrounds in the struggle to achieve societal transformation. So it is perhaps here that one sees Gramsci's most important re-examination of Marxist thought. Classical Marxists implied that a revolutionary consciousness would simply develop from the objective, and oppressive by the way, material conditions of the working class life. But Gramsci disagreed with this. And as well, you would see this as well, with a lot of the critical theorists and the postmodernists. So he disagreed, Gramsci did, noting that there have always been exploiters and the exploited, but very few revolutions. So in Gramsci's analysis, this was because subordinate groups usually lack the clear theoretical consciousness necessary to convert the structure of repression into one of rebellion and social reconstruction. There must be rebellion and then reconstruction, dismantling, disrupting, and then reconstruction. A great reset. Revolutionary consciousness is crucial. Unfortunately, the subordinate groups possess false consciousness. That is to say, they accept the conventional assumptions and values of the dominant groups as legitimate. They don't question those things because it needs to be deconstructed. But real change, he continued to believe, can only come about through the transformation of consciousness. So historically, Antonio Gramsci's thought shares features with other writers who are classified really as Hegelian Marxists. This would be like Hungarian Marxist George Lukács, the German thinker Karl Korch, and also members of the Frankfurt School, Adorno and, and Herbert Marcuse. And Marcuse is someone that you need to pay attention to a group of theorists associated with the Institute for Social Research, founded in Frankfurt, Germany in the 1920s, some of who attempted to synthesize the thinking of Marx and Freud. They all emphasized that the decisive struggle to overthrow the bourgeoisie regime, that is the middle-class liberal democracy, would be fought out at the level of consciousness. That is, the old order that had to be rejected by its citizens intellectually and morally before any real transfer of power to the subordinate groups could be achieved. So then we move to what happened with the folks in Frankfurt, and then quickly as they transitioned to America, that built what is known as critical theory. Well, here's another big definition to make sure you write down. Max Horkheimer defined a critical theory first in direct opposition to a traditional theory in his 1937 piece called Traditional and Critical Theory. So whereas traditional theory is meant to be descriptive of some phenomenon, usually social, and aims to understand how it works and why it works that way, a critical theory should proceed from a prescriptive, normative, moral vision for society. Now, well, you're going, hold on, what do you mean a moral vision? You're thinking of morals in your sense, from your, your Christian viewpoint, because you're creating new morals. That was the whole point. That's what Gramsci was saying. That's also what the critical theorists were saying. So critical theory describes how the item being critiqued fails that vision, usually in a systemic sense, and then prescribe activism to subvert, dismantle, disrupt, and overthrow or change it. That is generally to break and then remake society in accordance with a particular critical theory's prescribed vision. This use of the word critical is drawn from Marx's insistence that everything be ruthlessly criticized, and from its admonition to that the point of studying society, the only reason that you study society or history, the only reason that you evolve yourself, involve yourself in hermeneutics and in the study of, of the scriptures and interpretation is to change it. So critical theory is only concerned with abandoning the old descriptions of what is in favor of pushing for what the particular critical theory holds ought to be. It's the exchange of the is for the ought from the being to the becoming. 
Do you see what I was saying yesterday? The ambitions of the critical theorists of the Frankfurt School was to address cultural power in a way that allowed an awakening of working class consciousness out of the ideology of capitalism in order to overcome it. Particularly, these theorists had decided that the reason the communist revolution had not yet successfully spread throughout the West is that something in liberal Western culture must have been preventing it. So culture must be changed. Well, then we go ahead and let's fast forward to a couple of other folks. So we've talked about Marx. We've talked about Hegel yesterday. We talked about the Fabians. We talked about Gramsci. We've addressed the critical theorists. Well, some things happened in the 50s. One of the things was the death of Stalin, which then led to the exposing of everything horrible that had happened with Stalin. And horrible things were starting to happen in China as well. As a matter of fact, what happened under Stalin might have been exponentially worse than what happened in Nazi Germany under Hitler. That's how bad it was. So you can no longer be embracing it as the utopia. So along comes folks like Jacques Derrida. Jacques Derrida is someone that Tim Keller quotes quite often. So this is now we're in the midst of postmodernism. You can, by the way, go in the Gospel Coalition and take a course of how to examine the Bible through the eyes in interacting with Derrida and Foucault. That's on the Gospel Coalition site. So Derrida believed that everything within the world of meaning is determined by the discourses in which they are embedded. Discourses, in this sense, are, quote, ways things can legitimately be spoken about, end quote, which is to say linguistic structures of meaning in which words, signs, and signifiers, as they point to what they mean and signify, relate to another. So Derrida's view is that all linguistic meaning exists entirely within these relationships between words. So, like, if I say... This is a cup of coffee. So between my seeing it and identifying it, there is an understanding of what that is. Okay, there's a relation there. Then within that, there is trace in terms of culturally what I understand that to be or what other people have told me that it is. Even though that there's a top in it on it, and I didn't see this being made, I'm trusting that that's what that is. Well, what Derrida is saying is when you see something, you can't understand what it is. Derrida constructed the concept of phallogocentrism, which implies that these relationships between words tend to construct hierarchical pairs of meaning with one term, being considered intrinsically related and superior to some other term. So all of a sudden, what you, words you use to describe something, well, that might have been influenced by some of those things that are subliminal that the hegemonic culture is, is teaching you. So what he would also say is that, look, for any one thing, there can be an endless amount of interpretations for what that truly is. So what that allows you to do is say, when I'm looking at something, I don't really know the truth of that. And my positionality and my culture determines what that is based upon what I've been told that I need to believe about it. So if you apply that then to something like biblical interpretation... And you're saying, well, what does that verse mean? Well, now all of a sudden, we're going back to that nonsense that everybody sat around in the 70s in circles and Bible study meetings, you know, saying, well, what does that verse mean to you? Because it doesn't matter what it means to you. It matters exegetically what it means to you. Well, they would say, well, sure. Well, how did you come up with that exegesis? What process? Well, I understand what the Greek means. Is Oh, and how do you understand what the Greek means? Do you see where this goes? This is disastrous, folks. So you can't just say, well, the Bible says this. Well, how do you know that the Bible says that? Well, I know the biblical languages, and I understand contextually how to... Well, how do you know that? That's where you start to go. So a Derridian view is that systemic power is encoded in language by privileging the status of some words over other words. That's why we're deconstructing all of our language. Everywhere. Why you're told you can't use that phrase anymore. You can't use that word anymore. I was told last week that I can't use the word Pharisee anymore because it offends Jews. And I love the Jewish people. I love Israel. Let me move on. So in Derrida, both 
James Lindsay and I got caught up in that, and a bunch of Christian folks would not defend me for, you know. It actually was a, a word that was used by a former Southern Baptist president to describe me. So then I said, oh, really, Pharisee? Oh, well, then the trolls descended upon me. They all had pronouns in their bios and everything. But, so, so in Derrida, you have a further push to tear down all hierarchies. That was Derrida's push by applying phallogocentrism. So basically, was he borrowing from J.D. Greer? Was J.D. Greer? No, J.D. Greer was borrowing from Derrida, right. So when, when he was saying that we need to tear down all hierarchies, Beth Moore, we need to do that together. Anyway, so including what we know to be true, deconstructions. So where you move with this is really where CRT goes. And CRT moves towards, CRT is not the goal. It's not the end. CRT is the dynamite that you put underneath a large building in New York City to blow it up, to take it down. Intersectionality is the way that you build that building back up, upside down. That's the goal. So intersectionality, based upon the full acceptance of CRT, now moves onto the reconstruction of society based upon the cluster of concepts developed from Marx, Gramsci, critical theorists, and now Derrida and Foucault and Kimberly Crenshaw puts this together. She, you know, she's talking with folks like Derek Bell and so forth, and they have a case against one of the, the larger motor co- corporations that is saying, well, we, we can't just worry about discrimination based on race. It has to be on whether someone's female or not. And then it goes on from there using Derridian constructs to say, well, there's an infinite amount of genders. Once again, going back to Derridian deconstruction. Where do you think this comes from? I'm sorry I get passionate about it. But intersectionality postulates that our experiences of the social world are sharped or shaped by our ethnicity, race, social class, gender identity, sexual orientation, and numerous other facets of social stratification. Now, I hate to tell you this, Go to your favorite seminary or Christian university, and what you'll do is you'll end up finding an, off, finding an office of diversity, equity, inclusion. Because they're playing the Derridian game. Because they're told that they have to. And you need to say, stop. Or you don't deserve my money. Some social locations afford privilege, while others are oppressive. These various aspects of social inequality do not operate independently of of one another. They interact to create interrelated systems of oppression and domination. So the concept of intersectionality refers to how these various aspects of social location intersect to mutually constitute individuals' lived experiences. Now, I'm going to skip through a whole bunch of things here. But the reason I take the time to tell you this, and I've got 10 minutes here, is basically the goal of all of this in intersectionality is to basically create a system that I was very well aware of about 11, 12 years ago. And intersectionality is that system, but it's actually run through something else. It's called, write this down, ESG. ESG is your new social credit system. And if you want to know why everybody's doing this, while every denomination is doing this, while every Christian university is doing this, while every major corporation in the world is doing this, why every financial institution in the world is doing this, why Jeep and Chrysler, why Oreo cookies are pushing this nonsense, it's because they understand that ESG is just around the corner. You're not going to have a choice unless you blow it up right now. You need to literally mock this system. Here's what ESG is. Your social credit score is not going to be based upon your past financial records and so forth, unless you're white, of course. Uh, I need to claim that part of Cubanness within me and must cling to my Chinese wife. But those of you that have more melanin in your skin, you're going to have a little bit more of a shot at this. So first, ESG, the E is this. The E equals, write this down. Don't record this. I saw Andy's face when I said that. So E environmental advocacy. You're thinking, okay, well, I can recycle. Oh, it goes way past that. Now you're talking about, and this is something that James Lindsay and I spoke about last year because I'm like, I downloaded everything with him on this and like, we got to talk about this. Climate justice. 
So climate justice is mostly a term used in activism to take a, a basically a social justice approach to the issue of climate change, particularly issues corollary to and tangential to the issues of climate change itself. A largely distracting interest in climate justice has arisen really within activism and some scholarship in the humanities to document how issues related to climate change are best understood primarily as social justice issues. In particular, climate justice seeks to reframe the debate about climate change to one about the ways in which climate change will be more detrimental to oppressed people and less detrimental to privileged ones. And that means that it compounds injustice. So if you were familiar with everybody flying over to Scotland back a few months ago, that's why. So they're going to create a Marxist system based on Man bear pig. Sorry, that was a South Park reference. Based on nonsense. Climate change. So everything must change because people have it warmer or maybe they got a flood or there's a hurricane here. And it's all because of the rich nations. So the rich nations need to make sure that they're distributing their revenue, their income and so forth to the poor nations to build them up. Or we relocate entire groups of people into other systems. Got it? Here's the S in ESG, social justice. Okay, I don't have to spend much time on that, right? <laughs> so diversity, equity, inclusion. That's what that's all about. The last G is governance. So in other words, you got to do what the government tells you to do. And if you don't wear that mask indoors in New York City, in this Soviet republic that you live in, then you're going to get your $1,000 fine. And as well, it might start to affect your ESG score. So that is the new paradigm for the way in which we need to eisegetically examine and interpret scripture as well. And let me give you an example, and I'll finish. I got, just give me seven, eight minutes, we'll finish up. For example, Dr. Jarvis Williams, who is the Associate Professor of New Testament at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. This is what he stated about intersectionality before they changed it, and you can go back in the Wayback Machine, by the way. And then they put up a bunch of articles saying, well, he didn't really mean that. He wrote it. Uh, this is back in 2018. Quote, though I'm a marginalized African-American man with white male-dominated evangelical movements, Southern Baptist and Reformed, I'm still a part of the privileged male majority in my Christian tribe. <sighs> that was all one sentence, by the way. My brown marginalized identity intersects with my male identity through my African American identity. And though my, excuse me, though my African American identity has caused me to lose certain privileges and has caused me certain traumatic experiences of racism, both in the SBC and in the broader evangelical movement, my male identity affords me certain privileges that are unavailable for many blacks and brown women in white male dominated evangelical Christianity. That's all one sentence. <laughs> and so from what Dr. Williams is stating, and also from what Danny Aiken and others are now stating, that the new way to understand and to struggle against forces of oppression is through intersectionality. And intersectionality quickly adopted and modified standpoint epistemology. Epistemology means how you know something, which claims that one's position with respect to systemic power dynamics defining social reality and its intersections determines the possibilities for one's knowledges and status as a knower, which in turn reflexively defines one's relationship to dominance and oppression. Okay, So by using this methodology as the basis for biblical interpretation, which has been practiced in the SB seminaries, SBC seminaries and through RTS and other evangelical institutions, you derive at different truths. So you have the Cuban-American married to a Chinese woman way of determining truth. But I also have fat status too, which actually is an oppressed category. So the fat interpretation of the Bible. Okay. So if I lose weight, I lose that but I still need to self-identify as fat to be consistent in my later writings. I'm not kidding. It's hilarious. And you know what? You've got to mock it. You've got to pull out your inner Luther, you know, throw back a beer and have at it. Okay. Sorry. Lord, forgive me. So uh, I'm going to skip through this. Oh boy. Let me get past. So let me get down to the, the basis. So, when, where one is theoretically oppressed, one's views can be considered authoritative so long as they're authentic, which roughly means an alignment with how theory describes the experience of oppression for that identity group. So what is truth, right? 
while truth is completely thrown into a subjective spin cycle. The reason that I had to have James Lindsay come and speak with me on a New York City rooftop two years ago is because I was trying to explain this to my brothers, and they're like, oh, well, I don't know. No, those guys, we don't want to get into the weeds. All right, you don't believe me? I'm going to get an atheist tell you how this happened in the new atheist movement and how it's happening in education because the exact same thing's happening to you right now. And you can't see it because it's happening everywhere at the same time. It's, it's not just a problem that we have to take care of in the church. It's a problem you got to take everywhere. So you should be the ones sharing the truth. So anyway, let me give you a brief understanding in just about five, six minutes of how, and this is going to be the first time that this information is released. Okay, I'm doing this for Andy. I sat down with Andy two and a half years ago at a California pizza kitchen. By the way, I ate a salad. He had pizza. Uh, before I left for London, and he's like, just tell me what's really going on. I need to understand this. So I told him. Well, here you go. And I'm sure this part will be erased in the tape, so you might want to take notes. So, and I'm telling you this from, a firsthand, from firsthand experience, okay? And you can check me on this. Dom Helder Camara was born in Northeast Brazil in 1909. He was ordained as a priest in 1931 with direct authorization of the Holy See because he was so young. This guy was a wunderkind, brilliant when he was young. He got high positions very early. He was the Russell Moore of the Roman Catholic Church. So anyway, Camara was named Auxiliary Bishop of Rio de Janeiro by Pope Pius XII on the 3rd of March, 1952. During his first years as a priest, he was a supporter of the fascist socialist organization Intergralissimo, which, while being fascist and corporatist, held opposition between materialism, understood by him as the normal operation of natural laws guided by blind necessity, and spiritualism, the belief in God, in the immortality of the soul, and in the conditioning of individual existence to superior eternal goals. So basically, Kamara is somehow finding a weird mix of Marxism and fascism, which is corporatism, by the way, as well with Catholicism and spiritualism. So he founded two social organizations. In 1931, he, he formed the Women's Workers Catholic Union. And on the 12th March the 12th of March, 1964, Pope Paul VI basically brought him to be archbishop. And during his tenure, Kamara was informally called the Bishop of the Slums for his clear position on the side of the urban poor. And with other clerics, he encouraged peasants to free themselves from their conventional fatalistic outlook by studying the gospel in small groups and proposing the search for social change from their readings. He was active in the formation of the Brazilian Bishops' Conference in 1952 and served in its first general secretary as its first general secretary in 1964. So he attended all four sessions of Vatican II, being active in helping to draft several portions. By the way, this is the man that basically gave root to what we know as liberation theology, which kind of failed in America because it was just within a lot of black and Latino circles. But it was never accepted widely. Why? Because you don't have a hierarchical structure. Cone could say whatever he wants, and everybody could just dismiss him. They said, well, I don't believe what he believes. I'm going, but you can't do that in the church of the Roman Catholic Church. You can't. So in 1965, a few days before the council ended, 40 bishops led by Camara met at night in the catacombs, I don't know if you've ever been there, it's the, the caves underneath Rome. They celebrated the Eucharist and signed a document under the title of the Pact of the Catacombs. In 13 points, they challenged their brother bishops to live lives of evangelical poverty without honorific titles, privileges, and worldly ostentation. They taught that the collegiality of the bishops finds its supreme evangelical realization in jointly serving the two-thirds of humanity who live in physical, cultural, and moral misery. They called for openness to all, no matter what their beliefs. He stated that despite his support for nonviolence, he did not oppose violent tactics, by the way. He said, quote, and I'm just finishing up here, and I respect a lot of priests with rifles on their shoulders. 
I never said that to use weapons against an oppressor is immoral or anti-Christian. But that's not my choice. Not my road. Not my way to apply the Gospels. So he was known as the Red Bishop due to his condemnation of the anti-communist stance of the U.S. and his praise of Mao Zedong during the Cultural Revolution. Kamara identified himself as a socialist, but not really a Marxist. And while disagreeing with Marxism, he had Marxist sympathies. And he said this, quote, My socialism is special. It's a socialism that respects the human person and goes back to the Gospels. My socialism is justice, he said, concerning Marx, that while he disagreed with his conclusions, he agreed with his analysis of capitalist society. Domhelder Camara had a tremendous amount of influence on someone by the name of Jorge Mario Bergoglio, Pope Francis. Domhelder Camara was personally invited by the World Economic Forum's founder, Klaus Schwab, as the keynote speaker at the 1974 meeting in Davos. Schwab recently praised, this is just a few months ago, Domhelder Camara as his greatest influence and mentor and the man that he respected intellectually and spiritually. The World Economic Forum is the primary source, by the way, of the actions of social justice in the church today. In June of 2016, in full expectation of Hillary Clinton becoming the next president of the United States, the World Economic Forum sent this document out to the world, and especially among its members. Quote, the role of faith in systemic global challenges, end quote. The document states this, quote, the power of faith to impact global issues and shape global perspectives is a fundamental reason why the World Economic Forum consistently engages faith leaders and perspectives in our work. As a part of our efforts to incorporate an understanding and impact of faith in our analysis of complex global trends and challenges, the forum established the Global Agenda Council on the Role of Faith. Council members comprise the world's foremost experts. By the way, who's been going there for about 14 years? Rick Warren. To provide... <laughs> to provide thought leadership that furthers the faith agenda within the forum's activities. Over its most recent two-year term, the council worked to raise awareness about socio-cultural, cross-faith, and religious engagement efforts for the purpose of, purposes of conflict prevention and societal transformation. From climate change to gender parity, the World Economic Forum has identified critical global systemic challenges that require collaboration across different faith sectors. Understanding the dynamic role faith has in tackling each is the aim of this set of articles. I could go on. It talks about economic and social changes that need to be sustainable, values that are often rooted in faith, etc. And the World Economic Forum founder and executive chairman, Professor Klaus Schwab, speaking at the Global Agenda Council on the role of faith, concluded that values cannot be justified by the intellectual process alone and that faith must be Involved. My former clients. I want to say these are bad men. I hate saying this. James Riotti of Lippo Group and Overseas Union Enterprise. And the vice president of Lippo Group was a very good friend of mine. We did work for the Riottis back from 2011 to 2012. They were good businessmen. I, I, I can't say anything badly about that. They were very fair. Lippo Group from James Riani contributed to the World Economic Forum's document on the role of religion. And this was the article. The Faith Factor in Employment Skills and Human Capital by Neil Nielsen. Chairman, Lippo Group, Education Initiatives. Now, please remember that Neil Nielsen was previously the president of Covenant College in Georgia and was on the board of Crossway Books, writing this article for the World Economic Forum. Mr. Riotti has been highly involved in donating to institutions such as Reformed Theological Seminary, Third Millennium Ministries, both at my clients, they were both my clients at one time or another, and others in the Reformed Evangelical world. Mr. Riotti specifically funds Pastor Stephen Tong in Indonesia, so whenever you put in the words, the, the name Stephen Tong and see what other groups that he's been speaking and so forth, that's where Riyadi money goes. 
where a yearly conference is held with many of the names associated with the critical social justice movement in Christianity. I hate saying this. It's the first time that I've said this. And I know that we a small group here, but you're being affected, and I know that. Tim Keller is one of those that would go and speak at Stephen Tong, Tong's conference, paid for by the Riyadis. I love you guys. I love the church. I, I appreciate Andy having me out here. This is his first time really holding a, a conference, and we need to give him all the grace due. I need to. But this is important, folks. You have to understand what you're up against. And it's not just about, well, I just want to learn a little bit more about critical race theory. No. The problem when we say conspiracy theory is this. So many of us live our lives day to day. We get our education, we get our job, we want to live our lives. You don't understand that people for decades have been planning and plotting in ways that they could actually have power. That's the way a lot of people live their lives. That's the way I do things. Everything that I do is a conspiracy. <laughs> I'm working with other people, trying to make things work, trying to have an impact. You need to realize that this is coming to you. And you're the ones that need to do something about it. Let's pray. Father, I do thank you for this time. and just ask that you bless us, bless our time here in New York. Lord, be with the church. Help them to stand against this nonsense. And as well... Bless Andy and all the work that he's trying to do in New York. May he outgrow this building quickly. We ask this in your name. Amen.